Hi, it's Brett Cowell, and this is the Total Life Complete podcast, coming to you from the Dream Room at the Grove in downtown Dallas. Today, I'm here with Dr. Carl Crayer, speaker, author, consultant, and the other half of the First Friday Book Club team. Welcome, Carl. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me here. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, today, uh, hopefully, we're going to talk about leadership, teamwork, and perhaps where the ever-present change is the fundamental essence of the universe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and other such things. And my first question to all guests is, uh, how do you introduce yourself to people and ask what you do? Well, primarily what I do is, because our uh, company is called Creative Communication Network, is we do offer a lot of communication-based skills to uh, mid-size and large-size companies. And that does include things like teamwork, uh, presentation skills. We do a lot of things for managerial and supervisory skills, uh, leadership development, and also individual coaching for people who want to speak and write and lead better. So Communication is the fundamental element of it, but it's got a lot of other outreaches as well. Great. And I'd love to come back to what the essence of good communication is in, in a second. And what I thought I'd start with was uh, around the topic of change. And, uh, you know, is change the only constant to expect in the world today? Well, that's what a lot of consultants say. They uh, they say the only constant is change. And uh, as you know, I uh, co-authored a book called Organizing Change. And what we uh, did as the premise of that book was, is that if change is inevitable, then why are you in the passenger seat just riding along? Instead, get in the driver's seat and lead it. And so that's the perspective of that book and one uh, that I wholeheartedly adopt. Have the nature of the changes changed since then? Or what changes are we facing now? The processes and the steps for doing the change, organizing it and leading it, getting a steering committee and doing all the different components of it are still solid. Obviously, it's technology that has made the biggest change because we're able to do things obviously swifter and perhaps more accurately than we ever did manually years ago. But the steps haven't changed. They're still solid. What about the changes uh, in, in the environment? You talked about um, technology and there's, uh, you know, disruption's a word that we hear a lot about these days. What, what is disruption and what's disrupting us now? Well, part of the thing I think that's really happened because I've talked to enough managers about this that what you have today, because we've really abandoned in most companies the old promote from within policy. You know, you would look at somebody who's doing a good job and you would say to that person, you're doing so well, we're now going to promote you to a supervisory position where you'll be overseeing the work of others. Well, in that type of an environment, the supervisor did the work that he or she is supervising. That's not the case today. Now you have a lot of people who are managing work who never did the work themselves. Well, you talk about disruption, a person like that has one of two choices. He or she can say, I'm Mr. Big Shot, I'm your boss, I'm going to tell you what to do and here's what we're going to do. Or that person can say, you know, I've never done the work that you've done. I'd like to learn what you do, see if I can help you do what you do, get barriers out of the way and so forth. And let's try to work together to be successful. I think a lot of disruption comes when somebody tries to pull the big ego blanket and they really don't know what they're doing. There's a couple of good points here. One is around what you might call uh, disruption in the um uh, economic environment or the business environment, you know, globalization and technology and, uh, and other such things. Um, companies have responded to that by restructuring. And I think, is that the reason why people are managing work that they've never done before? Or is there other reasons for that? Well, of course, I think it is out of vogue to do the promote from within policy. I was always a fan of it and still am. I think it says a lot about loyalty. And I think it says a lot about uh, motivating someone to really work hard for a company if you know that the organization is going to look inside first and that they're willing to take on the learning curve that you will go through because you are learning a new job. Now, notice what you do know, though. You know the culture. You know relationships. You know how things work. 
when that went out of vogue and people started coming into organizations because they had the skills, but they didn't know the culture, relationships, how things work, that's an entirely different learning curve. So organizations have tended today to adopt the idea, I want somebody who knows what they're doing and I'll teach them the culture along the way. Well, that has not always worked very well. There's been examples of companies that have merged and 10 years later, they still don't know how to work with each other. So I do think that's one thing. The second thing that's happened is, is that many people are in fact working two jobs and they're being paid for one. You talk about lean organization and so forth. And many times people are very lucky to have a job. So they apply for a job, interview, uh, they get the job. And basically what they don't know is historically, they're actually doing that job and another one that has been consolidated into that job. And of course, they're lucky to have a job, but they're really doing two jobs and never really knew it. That's why there's so much stress. I lived in the in London for a number of years, and uh, I think based reflecting on what you said about the English Premier League and the football the soccer teams over there, you know, you've got a manager, a superstar manager coming in with high expectations, and then uh, they don't win enough games, and then next minute they're out, and somebody else is replaced. There. And yeah, I can look at the CEO leadership culture now and say we've got the same thing. We've got folks that are superstars or you know rock stars in self styled in in their own way, and they're going to parachute into an organisation. And, and make a huge change and I think from what, what you're saying is that that's not guaranteed to work because you need cultural skills and um, and technical leadership skills as sure well. I mean all part of getting results is not just revenue and profit of course um, having the cash register ring is what keeps the uh, organization going without sales you typically don't have a whole lot of anything else but you can really have a very damaging culture internally and externally if you don't pay attention to those things. Uh, one of the things that uh, I remember reading one of the books years ago was you can't cut costs on the way to prosperity. And what that really means is your eyes should be on how you make money, not how you slash jobs and uh, equipment and resources and those types of things. Now, Quickly to your question, though, about people, there really are, of course, a couple of different types of major leaders in organizations. Some uh, have grabbed magazine covers. They're on talk shows. Obviously, a good example of that is Larry Ellison of Oracle. Uh, you know, he's been on many business shows, no telling how many covers he's been on. And in one of the books that we did at the Book Synopsis, Jim Collins wrote about the level five leader. The level five leader is a person who has great humility, but also a strong will to succeed. And what he said was, you can look at an organization that has great results because by any scope, that's how you measure success. Are you in fact achieving your objectives and getting your results? But if there's no one person who you could identify as the source for that, you likely have a level five leader at work. Strong will, but humility. I wanted to ask about, um, you know, if I think about my leadership book journey, uh, probably one of the first books or two I read was From the Gut by Jack Welsh and uh, and Richard Branson's, I think, Losing My Virginity, that book there, and, you know, two different leaders. But, um, you know, the Jack Welsh rule of, of management, is that has that changed today? I reflect on people like Elon Musk and other leaders and, and, and to your comment about level five leaders who, who you know, build teams behind them. Well, I do believe that Welch is going to go down uh, if he's not already. Historically, is the greatest CEO in American history. You know, he took a company, General Electric, that was basically about to flatline itself, and he got the title Neutron Jack. He said that we're going to sell off every division of the company that isn't number one or number two. If you're not number one or two in the market for that business, you're out of the business. We're going to sell it off. And of course, he did a lot of restructuring, but what he really did well was he told a very consistent story. He told it to employees, he told it to stockholders, shareholders, media, anybody who would listen. He had a great vision. 
And he, um, I, I think, is also responsible for why storytelling is such an important part of a manager's toolkit today. I don't think anybody ever did it as well as Welch did it. Now, um, unfortunately, personally, he uh, got a little damage there as he uh, had some external issues. But um, I, I don't think that really puts a dark mark on the work he did at General Electric. But he certainly was what they needed at the time, a power figure who took charge, and he, uh, he made it happen. By every possible definition, uh, he's a leader. I always wonder whether... Uh you know, folks that get business books written that write there about themselves or other people write about them. If they were to start again, whether they'd be successful a second time. What do you think? Well, obviously, uh, enough companies have brought back former CEOs to come back and run their company again, even though it's been a number of years when they actually retired. And I think that says a lot to me about a person's wisdom and not their knowledge. You know, knowledge is codable. We can, we can get knowledge. You can uh, write it down, record it. Uh, we have people who do exit interviews. We have uh, people who know that they're going to retire. And so a company tries to get all the knowledge the person has. But what you can't do in that way is, is wisdom, that savviness of making judgments and making decisions under stress. You can't really write down wisdom. And I think that's what those people have. The ones who come back and have been successful, sure, they have knowledge, but they really have wisdom. And it's much appreciated in a company that says, hey, maybe we ought to look at this person again. And in most of those cases, those are people who uh, obviously voluntarily retired. Now, very quickly about that. There's also, of course, a trend that you should lead a company that you do not have industry experience in. And there's been a lot of examples of that where that's worked very well. But obviously, the J.C. Penney example with uh, Ron Johnson probably put to bed the idea that that's what we ought to always be doing. That was a person who did not have retail experience that way and, and certainly didn't know what he was doing. You've talked about wisdom. What, what, is, what is wisdom and what areas are, is the wisdom most valuable? Is it about people or processes? or? Well, I think wisdom really gets down to, um, I, I guess a key word I would say is, is it's, it's the savviness of business. It's not business knowledge, it's actually business application. Uh, for example, one of the things would be working in a highly ambiguous situation where not only is there not a history of the event that someone is facing, so it's a new sort of challenge, for example, for the person or the organization, but also one that has constraints like time, financial, um, maybe even um, uh, hacking, sabotage, those types of things. You really don't have a lot of time to examine things historically. So it's the, it's the wisdom, it's the savvy of knowing what to do, how to do it, how fast to do it, and so forth, that really makes a difference. I, I don't mean to say that it is entirely a crisis situation, but I think those are the kind that are the most uh, spectacular that we actually see. But again, you can study and codify knowledge, but wisdom is simply that idea that, do I know what to do, how to do it, uh, in, in a very short period of time where you don't have the resources to go back and look up uh, what we did because we've never done it. Let's talk about teams. So d teams, you know, the development of teams. And I, I remember this early in my, my career and even studying, uh, you know, self-managing teams and such concepts. Um, how have teams changed and what's their role in modern corporate? Well, unfortunately, um, teams have become a very um, lip service type of word. Um, many people use the word team, and they actually are talking about a group, not a team. And who wouldn't say they're not a team player? Uh, a person would be an idiot for not calling themselves a team player. And for some of those people, you only wish that they were. And then um, you have, of course, uh, situations where 
you simply have collaboration, people working together, but they're not really working as a team. For example, they may not be sharing the same methods and processes and, and those sorts of things. So I, I think perhaps uh, one of the most irritating things we have is people who use that term very loosely. And I would love for somebody to be honest, frankly. Someone asked a person, uh, who's on your team? And their answer is, well, we have some people, but uh, all we are is a group. And, <laughs> and be really honest, because a group is simply people who are put together uh, to work together in, in like a hierarchical chart or a division or a department. You know, they may be a team uh, and they may not be. But in many cases, groups are, are simply not all teams. You ever thought about the evolution of, of teams from, you know, self-managed teams in a specific plant or, or a corporate office and then to virtual teams and uh, you know i guess groups have always been around but they're particularly prevalent now but even the next stage talking about contributors so we're, we're more of a network a, a matrix of uh, folks inside the organization and external and contractors and consultants and all those folks have got to get something to do it so how do you get all them working together and is that is that productive at the end of the day well that's probably one of the most frequently asked questions i get when for example i'm about to do a team building program or a, a, a team building enterprise for someone uh the question comes up you know well what do we need to do to start working as a team? And uh, the answer is so simple, I'm actually embarrassed to give it to you, but the answer is you design the work where it's done by teams. If the work is designed where it's silo, independent, individual, and you know I have my job, you have your job, and she has her job, and he has his job, you're never going to work as a team because the work isn't designed for teams. So one of the activities I like to do, and that's particularly true for nonprofit boards of directors and uh, association uh, officers and so forth, is you take a look at the basic duties, and in some cases, these even have job descriptions. For example, when I was in the the group called today Association for Talent Development. Each one of our officers had job descriptions. Well, we can each have our job or we can look at this and go, hey, let's bust these walls down and let's design the work where we all help each other, give input with each other, cross-train, cross-question, those sorts of things. If you want to work as a team, uh, you design the work where it's done by teams. Can uh, corporate teams learn from sports teams? And uh, I know there's a number of books written by Navy SEALs and other groups like that that have been very popular recently. You know, I, I do believe in general people are tired of the sports analogy. I, I think people are tired of hearing she hit a home run today. Uh, he went nine. Uh, they, uh, they put it in the front pocket. And all these terms that go from billiards to baseball to golf and all of that. I sense people are tired of that. But I will say this, that of all of the kinds of teams that I see, it seems like to me sports teams are faster to adopt new players, new members, faster than anyone else that I've ever seen. Somehow, you know, you get in the locker room and it's like you've been there for five years that they tend to um, grab them and integrate them and, you know, put them in the fold better than many companies do. But I, I do think in general, people are a little tired of it. I think, you know, it's, it's very inspirational and having worked in the corporate world for a long time. Um, previously, you know, I've seen my share of, of sports uh, um, celebrities uh, presenting and it's always very inspirational, but it's kind of what happens next. And I think what you, you know, you've got to be selective about what you try and uh, learn from those those uh, teams as well that you can directly apply to your situation. Um, for example, having a shared goal, and I know you talked about maybe modern forms of organization where you you're partnering with your customers and suppliers and, and and contractors and consultants and but that can work as long as you've got a clear objective that everyone's heading to and i think in a sports game or in the army you know these seals that have written books there's a very clear objective here and then in business people go that's really inspiring and then they sit around a meeting table with eight or 12 different objectives um 
and wonder why the, your progress has not been made, even though everyone heard the same message. Well, that's why when I do um, the team building programs that I do, and sometimes, of course, I call them partnering. It, it's better together is the byline. But the first thing that we do is goals. Do, do we have clear goals? Are they understood by everyone? And are we sharing them? And I want to tell you that in the marketplace, I really believe that's pretty rare. I mean, I've participated in a lot of team building programs myself, and I've, I've seen what other vendors do. And I want to tell you the bulk of those programs are on bonding, getting to know each other, relationships. And I'm not saying that things like trust and climate are unimportant. I mean, of course, it's good to uh, have good relationships. And frankly, you can't have a team if you don't have trust. I understand that. But what I don't get is how being able to say to other people, I love you, man, is more important than knowing what your goals are because I can love you right into bankruptcy. I mean, let, let's figure out what we're all about first and then let's you know work on all these things like do we know each other's names and hobbies and all that. Um, brings up two other points though. One, I think it's interesting that we spend way too much time um, in things like trying to get people to become best friends and best buddies. And I just want to tell you, when I do team building, my only objective is, can you figure out how to work with each other? I don't care if you like each other or not. I mean, I've had jobs where I guarantee you, I didn't like people and some of them didn't like me, but I've never been paid a dime for liking anybody. I'd be a billionaire. I like people. I've been paid, as you have, yeah. for meeting objectives and achieving our, our outcomes. That's why we're there. And people have to understand, you know, we're going to work with people all our lives who we don't like and, uh, and they don't like us. And that's all I care about. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I would much prefer to go to a place where they like me, I like them, everybody likes each other. But that just doesn't happen all the time, and you got to figure that out. And then secondly, back to your point a moment ago, uh, what I've never understood is, and talking about sports to companies, I've never understood how you can have a most valuable player of a team. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, I do understand of a division or a league. I understand that. But there should not be a person who stands out in a team because true teamwork is we break down the barriers. We massage the work so much. We don't even know who does what because this is our product. I think the, the best sports teams, uh, they escape that false modesty when they actually say, you know, it wasn't me, it was the team because I think that's actually true. But when you're with a bunch of highly talented people, I guess there's, there's something about getting that individual recognition, acting in different roles, you as the individual and you as the team member um, towards that objective. But it's I, I, I think about... Just coming back to the relationship between people and organizations, you, you know, the job for life, how you might go into that and you sign up with a big company in corporate America or elsewhere in the world and you go, oh, that's it, I'm done now. I'm, it's all about climbing the ladder and cruising through to retirement. And that might uh, imply a certain relationship, a family re relationship with the, with the company. Whereas now, I mean, certainly it, it seems people are getting a lot more comfortable with that type of role to say, okay, I'm going to be here for a certain amount of time. I, I'm not expecting loyalty from a job for life in that, that, that type of loyalty or, or, um, or provision relationship from the company. Um, so I'm a professional. I know um, I've got used to project work now. My work has changed. I'm not necessarily sitting at the desk working with the same people all the time as well. So where the expectations have, have evolved and we're becoming more mature and actually being managing ourselves as individual contributors that you know might work for several companies even at the same time um, in the future. Yeah, well, obviously, today what is valued is mobility, not stability. And I think about times where, uh, let's say 15 years ago, if you were to work with a resume coach, he or she would show you how to demonstrate that you have uh, stability, been in the same job, done the same position, uh, maybe 
my duties may have changed, but I've basically been in this position and I'm loyal to it and to the company. Today, if you worked with a resume coach and you had that kind of background, they would show you how to bust it up. In fact, uh, I don't mean to say this is universal, but a senior HR person told me recently that three years is about all you want to stay in a company. And if you are staying in the same company beyond three years, make sure you're in a different position. It's no longer valued that, you know, you've been an associate sales manager for 28 years for Procter and Gamble. Used to be, but not anymore. Trying to balance up that savviness and, and the experience with the culture before, which we talked about earlier, which is, seems to be a characteristic still of good leaders with an expectation more at the at the mid-manager level that you need to move around and get different types of experiences and be challenged in different places. Yeah, well, you know, and, and I think uh, perhaps one of the things that has changed is uh, yeah, I, I do think for many years, the ultimate was to be able to become a manager. You know, that's what people wanted to do. And if you were a manager, you made it. Uh, unfortunately, many times your family, friends and coworkers didn't quite share that enthusiasm. They, they would come to you and go, you know, and here you are all excited about, you know, getting a promotion. And they would come to you and go, why do you want to be a manager? All this stress, extra work, babysitting, more hours and all of that. And they were not excited about you being one. And I've never shared that. I think we need managers. We need we need good ones. We need more of them. But I don't believe any longer that that is the ultimate thing that people look for. And part of the reason for that is there are so many what you would call just professional positions, particularly in the IT technology area, where you could be the only one in the company who does what you do. You don't need to be managed or manage yourself. Uh, what happens is, is that you have a niche area. And we're seeing more and more of that, I think. So I think this luster of uh, one day I would like to be a manager and that's my goal uh, simply isn't contemporary anymore. Do we need to get uh, the people working better together or do we need to just get more robots in? That's what I tend to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's no, I mean, there isn't any doubt. Uh, You look at traditional manufacturing places and I do enjoy going to see how things are made. I, 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 I've been to Georgia Pacific where they made paper and Budweiser and St. Louis to see the beer and all this. And, but it is interesting to stand on those floors, close your eyes and realize that uh, what you're seeing machines do used to be done by people. And uh, you see, obviously, when you compare ultra modern plants to ones that are less modern, you see more people doing work that's now become automated. And, you know, we've done some books like Rise of the Robots that uh, paint the story that the robots are not only going to do the work, but actually think the work for us. And I don't know what we're going to do to stop that. Uh, I don't know that anybody wants to. I mean, we're about to have driverless cars. You don't even need a person driving the car. So we're, we're, we're into that already. And, uh, you know, as, as long as I guess we can remain smarter than the, um, than the technology, I guess we're going to be okay, but that may not last forever. I mean, still <clears throat> it's kind of exciting to watch a, a person beat a computer at a chess game, but they don't win them all. Let's talk about, uh, individuals then. So we've talked about you know, organizations and teams, and now let's get down to the individual level. Um, do you think changes, given all, everything that's going on in society, you know, there's something about managing yourself, which that concept's been around for a long time, but uh, I think taking that to its logical conclusion, if you're a sole operator with a specific skill set, working across a number of organizations, um, that's quite different than the way it used to be. That might be stressful in certain circumstances. I certainly believe that that being able to manage change at a personal level is a critical life skill now, not just something you need at the office. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's absolutely true. One of my uh, consulting friends, George Rucheski, and I, we did a program at uh, Texas Instruments and, and some other places called Manage Your Own Development. And basically what that said was, is nobody is going to take the responsibility to develop you. If you want to build a skill set and you want to, um, you know, have different capabilities and 
be able to, you know, write a resume in a different way, then that's on your shoulders and no one else. If you're waiting for someone else to do it for you, you are going to be waiting because that's not other people's priority. But particularly millennials, you see they're very interested in career development and career pathing and skills that uh, what they want to do is they want to do a good job in the job they're doing, but they also want to be practicing skills that will allow them to get them ready for their next job as well. So their eye is constantly on being able to do something else. And it's people who, for example, challenge themselves. I don't care what it is with an Excel spreadsheet or a PowerPoint presentation or whatever that may be. Are you just doing it the way you've always done it? Or are you finding new ways to do it where you yourself are learning? And that's really all you've got. Years ago, Peter Senge said in the fifth discipline, your only job security is your ability to learn. And if you aren't taking the responsibility to learn, you're going to be left behind. I don't care where you are. If you're waiting on somebody else to do it for you, uh, you're going to be waiting a long time. Coming to the point about um, so knowledge then and the, the future of knowledge, I'm, I'm just fascinated about um, deep specialization and novelty, mid PhD approach and curation rather than creation. You know that you you find the best of what's out, then you recombine it a different way. Well, I, I do think that gets down to perhaps even simpler terms than you've used, and that's science and art. And for example, I teach presentations, I teach speech, I help people, I coach them in their presentations. And, you know, we can argue all day, is speech making an art or is it a science? And to the extent that you value creativity and differences and rules and certainty are not nearly as important to you as uh, art differences and, you know, doing things in ways that are unpredictable, then art is more important to you than science. On the other hand, if you believe that there are principles that are largely governed by laws, uh, for example, I think there's laws that govern audience attention. You know, there are, there are principles that say if you do this or you do that, you're going to have a greater percentage of people paying attention to you in an audience. I don't think that's art. I think that's science. So back to your question, though, I think anything can be perhaps divided into that way. Is it art or is it science? So Gowen's book and um, the book by Twyla Tharp that uh, my partner Randy Mayu likes so much. And um, I remember one years ago called The Artist's Way. It was by an author named Cameron. Um, you know, I, I really never thought creativity was trainable. I thought it was innate. I thought you either had it or you, or you didn't have it. Well, turns out you can be more creative and you can, in fact, learn how to do it. But it's that um, way that you approach things. Is it, in fact, a science? Is it law, rule, governed? Or is it okay to think of it as a creative something that we're, we're shaping? I think you can do just about anything both ways. I could, for example, craft a new job for an organization, all right? And in making the job description, I could fill it with uh, things that are ambiguous and vague and leave it up to the person to do this or that. Or I could realize that there are longstanding principles by which somebody who does these things is successful. Well, if that's the case, I'm, I'm using science to do that as well. But what I do think is interesting is you think perhaps uh, because the discipline we have is management science. That's an actual discipline. So to think that we are looking at business books with art and creativity in them, and one was even called uh, Delivering Happiness. That was by Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, the shoe company. He, he, he believes happiness is trainable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th this idea of science and art to me is how you would look at that. Kind of funny. And, and both coexisting still, uh, you know, I don't think we've reached a stage, you know, thinking about Thinking Fast and Slow as a book, you know, a very uh, um, meticulous, detailed book and then quite a number of other books that I, I, I kind of – struggle with a little bit that kind of cherry pick okay here's a summary of, of that theory in plain speak you know because i don't think anyone 
thinks that thinking fast and slow is is a nice light book that you want to go and read on the beach maybe some people do um but there's immense value and an investment gone into to, to producing that and value out of it but um so i i, I don't know I, I i i sometimes struggle with some of the some books coming business books coming out that are very popular that are just restating principles in a well look what you're doing right now i mean think about this for a second did and i know you've done a number of interviews so you really don't have to do it i'm about to say but do you believe what you're doing right now this interview is it an art is it uh is it create creativity is it uh is it doing things um in ways that are so much uh unstructured maybe haven't been done before but they're different and and you're uh, you're doing things uh as they come to you and is your spark to do it or before we sat down did you review a book and look at the 20 principles of effective interviewing and those are principles and you're using them i don't know what you're doing but it's the same it's the same thing well part of i think that the appeal of podcasting is about storytelling and and really what hasn't changed even though we're now on a podcast as opposed to in, in written form or a piece of art is we're still trying to communicate a message and and to uh, as humans you know in, in groups that we want to tell stories to each other and we want to learn and and as adult learners i think if we wanted to take that i think you know we learn from experience and stories about experience that's really where that changes us and you know i could read a book about something but if i hear something on the on the radio or, or now in, in a podcast especially i've already had feedback from some of the listeners that have picked up individual snippets of this and they'll go and do something about it even though they've heard about it a number of times a the, this medium that we're, we're sharing at the moment is is an amazingly powerful one, and I think to, um, to to engage with a broader audience and and you know enrich their lives in a way. That's why I'm doing it. Well, there's nothing more powerful than a story, and and that's why in doing um, speech coaching, and in fact, when I teach uh, public speaking, I want everyone to include stories because they are memorable and they're editable and they are conversational and so forth. And, you know, you may long forget who said it, why they said it, where they said it and so forth, but you remember the story. That goes all the way back to elementary school, perhaps. And then you look at, um, just go to amazon.com and type in stories in business. And there are um, a couple of dozen books about storytelling as a management tool, as a uh, competitive uh, tool, as a business advantage and so forth. And so what, what came out of kindergarten is now a, uh, a very heavily relied upon business tool. And frankly, I, as I said a minute ago, I think that's where Welch drew a lot of his power. So other people have figured out how to do that as well. Um, you know, if you get out of business realm for just a moment, uh, I think the first president that ever did this was Ronald Reagan. In the State of the Union address, he would plant people in the balcony and he would isolate them and tell a story about them. A POW, for example, who had, uh, who had lived through it and came back to America. An astronaut, uh, a minority who might have done something. Well, every president is doing that in every State of the Union address. We don't remember what the president said, but I bet we remember those stories. They're memorable. There's something about what stories we listen to now, you know, with me on-demand media um rather than picking up a broadsheet newspaper and reading it cover to cover or watching broadcast network TV all night on one channel and, and ever getting those same messages. You know, there's a dynamic now about selecting the messages that we want to hear. Some of them, or many of them reinforcing what we already know or want to believe or, you know, as opposed to being challenged with with different views. So I wonder how that will play out, your view on that in terms of communication now. Um, are we getting fair and balanced and wide-ranging communication or are we getting increasingly siloed, really? Well, I do think that what we're doing is we're getting more biased. And what I mean by that is, is that if you're going to use stories as support material, then what you do is you obviously pick out those stories that are going to support your point. Before I came down here today, I was talking about a conference that I'm going to host and facilitate on domestic violence. And the question is, are we winning the war against domestic violence? Well, I made sure to these people that they understood that, you know, we can talk about success stories and feel good about it all day. 
but we also probably have some stories where we have not succeeded, where there are still problems and so forth. And yet I do think most people, uh, I don't care where you are in business or personally or whatever, we tend, of course, to select those stories that obviously support what we want it to support. So we aren't exactly balanced or informative in what we do. Stories are actually, to me, a, a more persuasive tool. And I think they can be very effective. Uh, I, I don't mean to diminish it at all. Uh, I will tell you one place where I think they have failed quickly, and that is think back about all the times that you, uh, and I, I attended these and that they're still being run today, where someone who's had a tough life goes into a high school auditorium in front of students and talks about, don't ruin your life like I did because I got on drugs or I did this or I did that, don't do it and so forth. Well, that person's very brave for sharing that story. But you know, the people he's talking to have not yet experienced that. And people wonder why in the light uh, of that story was it ineffective? And is people just want to do what they want to do. You can say, don't do it, don't do this, don't do that. And it's great to say to people, but not all stories are going to be effective, like any other type of support, though. It's not unique. And I also wonder whether there's going to be a story fatigue, because like things are cyclical in, in business and, uh, you know, at the moment... You know, clearly there's new uh, technology platforms, uh, digital, et cetera, and also storytelling has come back on these new platforms to say, well, how do I tell that story on Twitter or on one or the other, on Instagram or, or, or whatever. But I also wonder whether there's um, we're going to get fatigued by that, and I already am in some ways. You know, there's a lot of storytelling which I'm allergic to, you know, with, with big companies and picking out somebody's story, and you're like, that is actually doesn't represent what you do as an organization. And um, that's kind of, the storytelling has kind of been tacked on in a very manipulative way to try and achieve an objective. There was this, so we started with, with change is the only constant. And I think there was this um, Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, and if I'm saying his name properly, who said that, uh, and I think the, the original quote was something like, um, let me see if I can find it. No man ever steps in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. Right, and but but he also said character is fate, and we, which is something that I believe is, is uh, true. And I also want to believe that good character leads to a good fate, if, if just to extend that as well. And you know, the, this kind of character-based message um, is an old one, going back probably to biblical times and ancient history. But um, you know, is that one? that is still relevant today or one that needs uh, to be updated for the digital age? No, I don't think we'll ever wear out the need for credibility. And, you know, part of that, of course, is competence. Uh, part of that is trustworthiness. Uh, are, are you a safe kind of person? And then the other part of that is is dynamism. Uh, how exciting are you? And those three things put together would allow someone to make a judgment about is someone a credible, believable source, meaning that I believe what they say uh, based on simply who or what they are. And I don't know why that would not lead to great character building. Uh, it would seem like to me that's a strong correlation. The, the stronger your credibility, the greater you are as a character. And, and, and who wouldn't want to be thought of as somebody who knows what they're talking about, is safe to be around, and also is interesting and fun? I can't imagine anyone not wanting to be called that. But and I, I do admit to you that there's likely a lot of other elements to character building than simply that. But I, I can't think of a stronger component. If you have good credibility, uh, you likely have good character. And, and that's where I think you ought to put the focus. Yeah. Can a book change your life? And, and if so, which books have touched you and influenced you the most? Uh, well, of course, I'll never forget. Um, Randy and I talk a little bit about self-help books occasionally. I'll never forget uh, reading the first line of Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. The first line was, life is difficult. And I know a lot of people probably closed the book and said, no kidding. Uh, I went ahead and read the rest of it to figure out what you do if it's a difficult life. But I, I, I'll never forget that as at least an opening line that's, that's made a difference. I'm not a huge uh, 
self-help type of person, but occasionally you'll see one that you like. I would tell you probably the uh, greatest book that made a difference for me on a personal level, because it's also bled into what I do in, in business, was a book by um, a televangelist named Joyce Meyer. And she wrote a book called Do Yourself a Favor, Forgive. And I want you to listen to that title for just a second. You do yourself a favor. You're not doing it for the person who you blame or blames you. You're not doing it for your mother or father. You're not doing it for God. Uh, you're doing it for you. Do yourself a favor and forget. And I'll never forget, talk about stories. The book is filled with them. And this idea of carrying around a bag of rocks because you're angry at somebody who's no longer even acknowledging your existence is a terrible thing to do. And how light it can be when you finally give it up and say, you know, I forgive you and stop thinking about a person who has long moved on. Uh, when I think about that book, and again, it is a spiritual book, but good heavens, it had a lot of, uh, of impact for me in business and with people and dealings of things. And I, I, what I found is I'm able to, it, when I do it, I'm able to concentrate on what I should be doing and not on uh, things that I have absolutely no, no control over. And, and so that was another one. And then probably, I guess I'll never forget the impact of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I know people are tired of it and it's now been around for more than 25 years. But I read it and I facilitated it and I went to the Covey workshops and, and I found the principles to be very, very solid. And um, so many of them made an impact on my life, particularly the one that said, uh, seek first to understand and then to be understood really makes a difference. There's too many people in the world who have that backwards and I, I've done my best. I may not be perfect at it. In fact, I'm not very perfect at it, but I've, uh, I've I've really used a number of those principles. But those are some that made a difference to me. So on the topic of forgiveness, and I don't want to make a connection where there isn't one, but you talked about the domestic violence um, conference that you, you're hosting here. Um, you know, is is what's the role of forgiveness in 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 life? You know, people recovering from terrible um, traumas and uh, and and not just just dealing with this life that is difficult. That you're saying, what's the role of uh, forgiveness with those? Well, I think it's um, extremely powerful. I, I don't know what good it does any victim to continue to be angry and blame someone who has uh, beaten them, raped them, hurt them, and so forth. I mean, they understand all of that, and it happened to them. But that person has moved on in, in perhaps many, many different sort of ways. And in uh, most cases, my guess would be that person isn't thinking about the victim at all. So what good is it for the victim to be thinking about the abuser? What, what good is it doing to hang on to, I just think of a sack of rocks over your, over your back. Um, maybe your time is much better spent um, helping other people, looking at different directions and those sorts of things than thinking about how angry you are at the person who violated you. In the book uh, by Joyce Meyer, she talks about a uh, man who was at home with his sister. And when they were teenagers, two people invaded their home and killed their parents. One of the lightest things this guy ever did in his life was go find the person in jail and tell him, I forgive you. He said it was an instant flush of uh, just you know, anger and, uh, and, and, and completely getting out of his system all of these things that, uh, you know, holding on with anger is not going to bring his parents back. And, and it's a, it was a great story I hold on to. But I, I don't know what the arena is, why it would be helpful to hold on to anger when there's not a thing that's going to do for you. I think your times and your energy and your emotions are better spent in other places. Let's talk about uh, Dallas for a while. Did, we, did you grow up here? Or? Yeah, I did. Actually, um, I moved here when I was four weeks old. And the only time I've been um, gone from here is to uh, go to school. I was in Houston for two years. That's a master's degree. Uh, two years in Oklahoma for a doctorate. And then um, I taught in Alabama for two years. So of my years, really only uh, 
six to seven years have been away from here. I always ask my guests how to explain Dallas because I think there's people listening here in about 17 or so different countries around the world so far. And um, how do you explain what this city is and what it's about? Well, it's a to me a very vibrant city. I I I think it's terrific to live in a place like this because there are so many opportunities uh, for you to do so many different things, and those are cultural. We have a lot of. Um, I enjoy going to musicals and plays. Um, I even went to the symphony a few months ago, which was a little different for me. And uh, museums, and then of course we have all kinds of sports venues. Uh, different kinds of restaurants. It, it's a melting pot of places to eat. And then obviously a lot of history is here, including uh, not far from where we're sitting, uh, November 22nd, 1963, when President Kennedy was uh, was shot here on the streets of Dallas. So what uh, this to me is, it's a place of, uh, of great opportunity to, to see so many different things that are put together I know a lot of cities have these same things, but I think we may do it in a different kind of way. Now, what I don't understand, though, is, and I remember being around a salesperson a number of years ago. He was here in Dallas for a sales conference for our company, and he was telling me, he said, I, I can't wait to get back here. I want to bring my family here and all this. You know? And I was, I was listening to that, and I was glad he was excited, but why? I mean, there's no lakes here. Uh, we don't have mountains here. This is, a, this is a city. And if your vacation is to get into the city, then we've got it. But this is not exactly a place to get away. Uh, and I, I don't know what his uh, ambitions were. But if you're, to me, you're looking for a city, this is what, what does it. And then, of course, you know, there's just enough of the Western culture, not quite as much as you see in Fort Worth, but you still see enough boots and um, you know, your, your accents and those sorts of things to know you're in Texas. What about uh, current projects that you'd like the listeners to hear about, things you're working on at the moment um, that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, right now, of course, uh, in a nonprofit perspective, I am going to host a second domestic violence conference. That is in uh, October. It's October the 20th, 2017. Uh, my company, Creative Communication Network, is the host and sponsor of that and uh, i'm very excited about it obviously it'll be on the uh, on the website and other places uh and it it will be uh, uh initially on our own blog which is uh, 15 is the name of that blog and i'll have some things on it soon uh, then also um, i am working on uh, some things to further the work of, of partnering and, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier virtual teams. You see, obviously, more and more virtual encounters today because we're having more meetings that are held or video conferencing, teleconferencing, uh, Skype, WebEx, all those sorts of things. Um, it is a challenge to have a team, not a group. It's a challenge when you have a team in that kind of environment. I'm not the only one that's written or studied about it. But I would say I think a lot of people have given up because you have challenges like time zones, language barriers, platform barriers. You know, some people are still on dial up with the blue bar and you have a group. Sure. But how do you really take those people in an environment where everybody's not face to face and succeed on a virtual basis? And so that's something I really want to continue to develop. Uh, maybe even do some workshops in that area. And then lastly, I'm very big on influencing. Uh, I believe in uh, influencing not just from a product perspective where you're selling a product or service, but I also believe that is a management tool. So I call myself the influencer. And I want to show people how to take a culture from telling people what to do into selling them on what to do under the premise that when you're sold, um, you're going to be a lot happier, more motivated, higher quality, everything than when you're told what to do. And what hit me was about 15 years ago, uh, I, I'd been a sales trainer for a long time. And I don't know what epiphany hit me, what hit me at 2 a.m. one day, but I woke up and it hit me, we all sell something. 
We don't have to have a product or a service. We all sell ideas and directions. And so I've made that into a management tool. And so I call myself the influencer. And those are some uh, coaching opportunities and workshops that I'm doing right now. Great. And uh, we're going to come to some closing comments in, in a second. But Look, I mean, you've mentioned domestic violence a number of times, and I don't want to. I want to find out more about this. Why this is such a personal cause for you? Well, actually, I had no idea I was getting involved with it. Uh, what happened was is that I was meeting with uh, a person who I was helping to speak. Uh, I was actually coaching her. Her name is Carmen Corius, and so um, we were talking one day, and she said one of the areas that she wanted to really focus on. Um, was to help victims in domestic violence and sexual abuse. And so uh, I said, well, that's great, and so forth. She said, maybe you'd like to do that as a project also. And I was like, well, if I've got so many projects, I don't know. But um, in my usual flair, I just took off, and I, I probably read about 300 articles on it. And I realized that there are a lot of people who um, simply need uh, help. They, it's not that they necessarily need a shelter or a place to go or whatever, but they need to understand that there's hope in their lives. And they need to understand that there are people that have compassion for them. They don't want people to feel sorry for them. That, that's not what these victims want. But what they want is to be able to lift the fog and find a new way that they can operate in their lives. Whether that means uh, you know, going to a church and getting active or going to get a degree or uh, working in some way to, with your own finances because you've never done it. it it's, it's getting out of the way that uh, they typically have been in that in that cycle. You know, obviously not falling for the next man or woman because they happen to be cute and lonely. Uh, we've already been through that. We know how to do that. But I, I think what I found was it was an opportunity to... Um, to see that there were people who needed help, but they needed it in a different way. So the very quickly, the conference we did last year talked about interventions. So I brought speakers in who spoke about it from a human resource perspective, what are companies doing, what are communities doing, what are educators doing. I had a sheriff from the city of Garland who came in and talked about what the legal system was doing about it. And then uh, we had a, a victim presentation as well. So that was the exciting thing to me, uh, is being able to find ways to, to help some people in a, in a different way. I was never uh, abused uh, you know, domestically. I hope that I never am. But if I can find ways to get resources to some of these people, it's very exciting to me. Absolutely. It seems that what you're doing with this is an extension of your professional skills and what you do, and applying some of those talents to make progress against a cause well that is true and i think it's a number of ways uh, one of course is to uh talk with someone like carmen who wants to speak and wants to write and be a representative that way and i'm, I'm very glad that she is uh, affiliated with my organization but also uh the idea that uh, you know you can provide a, a lot of life skills to people who never thought they could do them you know manage their own money make their own decisions, uh, stand up in front of people and talk, um, you know, even share their story with other people. They themselves become volunteers. And, you know, it's interesting. It does go back to partnering because we're all in this together. And if there's something I can say to you that's going to help you be better at something that, uh, that, that I may not be good at or I might be good at, uh, let me talk about that with you. And so, in a way, all the world could be a, a partnering stage for that. But I do think that's an accurate observation. I think that helping people to speak and write and, and think differently about their situation, and it does not mean at all that they uh, are in denial. It's, it's not that it didn't happen. It's just that it happened, and uh, and now I'm moving on. I, I guess some people say, uh, I'll, I'll forgive, but I may never forget but I will forgive. I think it's, it's uh, you know, pulling together some of the things we've talked about, about storytelling and the ability of stories from people's experience to help others. And I, I think there's there's still miles to, to go in that, even in a digital age and maybe even particularly in it, that we get, we're deluged with so many messages and um, 
we can live in a city such as Dallas with so much prosperity and then not realise that there's terrible social, you know, homeless and po- poverty mm-hmm. and, and domestic violence. And we heard about human trafficking last week on the, on the show that, you know, you can easily just tune out of those messages and not or even believe that you can't do anything about it. Well, one of the big drivers for that, of course, is to realize that uh, when when any victim realizes they don't have to be stuck, uh, you know, they can be if they want to, but it's actually their choice to do something about their situation. Maybe it's just baby steps, but uh, n- no one can really say, you know, that I, I am a victim and this is what I am. Uh, with that also saying that, you know, there's also a way out. There's a different way to think. Uh, it may take me a while. It may be difficult, but uh, there is a, another way to do. Uh, one of the presentations that uh, Carmen gives is called It Ends With You. It ends with you. Uh, you know, this doesn't end with anybody else. You're the one who makes the decision to do this, do this, do this and that. And that's a very powerful thing. Uh, by the same token, by the way, I, I, I do teach occasionally community college courses. Um, I actually have a very soft spot for working mothers who are uh, working all day, go home, cook, take care of kids, and then come back to, to school. They're trying to do something with their lives. And it's funny, they found a way to be the best students sometimes. <laughs> they really do. So I, I'm excited about people who decide to take control of their situations and let's do something about it. That's a nice segue to my, my final question about kind of life advice. I mean, you, you've kind of dedicated a long period of your uh, professional career and academic career to, to helping people and, and studying people from every different angle and helping people to um, be more productive and, and to communicate better and things like that. What has that taught you about life and, and what sort of life lessons do you want to pass on to the listeners? Well, I, I think that um, particularly being around international business people and international students has really made a great impact on me because what I found was is that you simply don't stop at tolerating differences, but you actually embrace them. And it's when people decide that I'm not just only going to give people a chance who are different than I am, who look different than I am, do things differently, have different customs and speak in different ways. I'm not just going to tolerate it. I'm going to actually embrace it and do something with it. I think that makes a humongous difference. Uh, I've been very fortunate since 1976 uh, when I was in Houston. I did my first work with executives from Exxon who were not uh, Native American speakers. And we worked on accents. And I've worked with people who sound like you, who wanted to either get rid of or enhance their accent. You can do it both ways. Um, And I've been with uh, people from all over the world at the University of Dallas as they worked on their MBA programs. I've taught ESL classes and so forth. And I think I've been very fortunate that I've had a life fascination with uh, differences and diversity. I really do enjoy learning about customs and so forth. But uh, just a word of advice for all the listeners, if you are your general American type person and you're speaking to someone of international origin, you do not need to speak louder. That's what most people do. They see someone who's from a different culture, different nationality or ethnicity, and they decide they need to speak louder. Uh, these people have no hearing drum problems. Well, it's quite funny, a story on, on that I was watching. Um, so I'm originally from this place called the Isle of Man, which is a small island off the, the coast of it's between England and Ireland. And there's a famous motorcycle race there that happens every year. And they and the New York Times uh, interviewed a character from there. You know, they do when the, the race is on. It gets a lot of publicity. And and uh, so this is someone from where I was from originally before I moved to Australia. And there were subtitles on it. And this person is speaking <laughs> English. And they do it for Scottish people as well. And we're not too far from there. But I, I just thought that was hilarious that, uh, that we needed those subtitles just in case people might be confused. <laughs> There's a kind of a trend, you know, people are working longer and harder and there's a trend towards integration between um, work and life. Now, whether you're just a, a Generation Xer like me or someone, uh, you know, around my age or older, uh, where you 
your work and life are being slammed together certainly particularly before i left the corporate world where you know you you're constantly running around with your hair on fire or if you're a millennial where you see work and and life are different expressions of yourself you know if i wanted to kind of paraphrase it that way are people um having those honest conversations now we're getting towards a state of authenticity where people can say yeah i'm really interested in that team building concept you've got but i'm dying from overwork at the moment can we just have a proper discussion about how to work together there's no question about uh, what really i think technology has done more than anything else is make us more available than we ever have been before because frankly work can always find you and you can always find work and obviously as we've moving into smartphones and tablets and all these things, you you really can't even go on vacation. I mean, they're going to find you and you're going to find them. And frankly, some people have forgotten how to relax. Um, even sitting here, I, I'm wondering how many Facebook posts have I missed? Uh, have I missed texts? Uh, have I missed voicemails? It hasn't affected this interview. I mean, I put them away. But frankly, I do wonder about that, and I, I do it all the time. I, I'm sure I'm not unique at that. But I, I, I do think that is the case. I think that uh, whether we plan to do it or not, we are spending more hours working because work is just more available to us. And it, it penetrates our lives in, in so many ways that uh, you know we're, we're not even off anymore. And of course, some people, that's they thrive in that. I mean, that's a wonderful thing to keep them going. Others think it's a sad state of affairs. And I think it's very interesting also about the, you know, what we're doing right now with the podcast. I mean, certainly the experience of recording that is having a conversation in a room um, uh, where there aren't those distractions around and, and um, the listeners are going to be in their car or in the shower and, and wherever else you listen to a podcast may be multitasking. This is certainly some time where... Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's a time to be present. I mean, certainly from my perspective, interviewing a, a guest is one of the few times where people really listen to you and you have a chance to express yourself without interruption. Um, any final words for the listeners? Uh, no, I just want to tell you, I hope that um, many people do go on your site. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, on your site, Brett, I hope that people will explore the other links that are on it. Uh, you've obviously had some good guests. There's a multitude of topics out there that you can learn from. And it's my great hope that uh, this becomes a tool that uh, people can, in fact, not just learn from, but expose themselves to uh, new ideas and new tracks and so forth. And if you are listening to this, uh, don't make this the last one uh, you're listening to. It, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me here. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Scott. You bet.